So as I was gone this week, almost all of the week, I had been looking for an opportunity to preach, I don't know, what I, what I would call a, a special message. I wanted to just take a week out of John if I, if I could as I was out all week and I've had this message in my heart for, oh, months. Months I've been trying to find an outlet for this because I want to make sure that I'm a, a faithful shepherd to you and the elders and I have been talking about it over the months and, and don't want to be neglectful in this most important area of stewardship and particularly stewardship of finances and what you do with the money that has been entrusted to, to each of you. I think I would preface to, I would want to preface this and say at the beginning, there's no problem uh, in my heart. I'm not <laughs> upset in any way. In fact, the Lord has blessed us immeasurably at this church, and I'm grateful for that. And certainly, none of the pastors, none of the elders know exactly who gives and, and so forth. There's just a few that do that tally that for tax purposes. So I don't come to you out of a bent that something's wrong. In fact, I really come to you out of a place of joy and encouragement, but, but want to make sure we're not neglectful of this. Um, you know, when we think of what Jesus said in Matthew 28, teaching to observe all that I command, I feel as though sometimes as a pastor and as an elder, this is a subject sometimes that doesn't get addressed. So forgive me if this is a truth that we've not borne to you on how you handle your finances and money. And so I want to do that today, okay? If you're new with us today, understand this is uncanny to do this. In fact, we're neglectful doing this. I think especially for a number of us growing up in the 80s and the 90s to see the widespread abuse of finances that still goes on today amongst the health and wealth prosperity gospel. We just tend to take a back page to this, and I want to make sure we're not guilty of that with you, okay? I want to make sure that we're teaching the whole counsel of God. I want to make sure you understand this for your joy. And so, you know, it's interesting when you think about stewardship is really the topic today. Our Lord in the Gospels taught 38 parables, 38 parables. And out of those 38, 16 of them are in regard to how we handle our possessions. I think it's intriguing that Christ said more about money and possessions than he did about heaven and hell combined. It's intriguing. And yet a subject sometimes that we just don't speak about. In fact, if you were to tally it this way, in the Gospels, one out of every ten verses deal with money and possessions. And did you know that in the Word of God, there are over 500 references to prayer, okay? Less than 500 references to faith but there are over 2,000 references to money and possessions. It's hugely important in the Word of God. 
And so for our time this morning, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, and I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a parable that comes from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it speaks of your, your financial preparation for the life to come. What are you doing to prepare for that day? Let me read 1 through 13 for you. He also said to the disciples in 16.1 of Luke, There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that, is, that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning the master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Our Lord enters here. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give to you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. What a great, great text. Certainly, the thing that sticks out there to me, to you, is the master, verse 8, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, just for a moment to set the text, when you look in Luke 16, it's this concept of money that underlies all of the teaching that follows. If you were to just take a look at Luke 16, you would see that. It, it highlights everything. In fact, look at 16.1. He said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man. If you glance down at 16.14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things. And it says in 6.14, they ridiculed him. After he got done teaching on the parable of the unjust manager, the text says they ridiculed him. In the Greek, they kind of turned up their nose at him. They scoffed at him. In fact, if you look at 1619, maybe a passage familiar to you, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. So you see it in verse 1. You see it in verse 14. You see it in verse 19. And to get his point across, Jesus teaches the parable of the unjust manager. And it is a call to each of you, to myself, to be a good steward of our money. And I would say this, to keep 
the end in view. Okay? Here's where we're going today. Quickly. I want to look at the problem with the manager. Then secondly, the plan of the manager. Then we'll take a look at the praise of the owner. And then finish with the principles of the master. We'll look at the problem. Then the plan. Then the praise of the owner. And then the principles of the master. Let's look, if you're taking notes right away, at the problem with the manager. The problem with the manager. Look down in verse 1. He also said to the disciples. Stop there just for a second. He's addressing this to the disciples. And by the word of God and by the spirit of God, he is addressing you as his disciples this morning. But look again at the text. It says in 16.1, he also, the word there is, said to the disciples, I still believe he has his Pharisee, the Pharisees in mind. In fact, you remember as we read, they were listening to him in 16.14. So the context is set that he's addressing you. He's addressing the disciples while the Pharisees are eavesdropping on this truth. Now look at verse 1. It says there that there was a rich man who had a manager. There was a rich man. It's a parable. And he was the owner of a very, very large estate. And this particular rich man had a manager. The manager obviously acted on his behalf. And you get the idea of reading the text. This was a rich man of immense wealth, for he was not managing it himself. He put this manager in charge, and he gave him considerable power. Now look at the problem in 16.1. It says the charges were brought to him, that the man, brought to him the owner, that the man, this man, was wasting his possessions. You begin to see the problem emerge here. There were charges brought, charges plural, multiple if you will. And they come to us in the language of hostile intent. Now the text doesn't say here whether they were true or false, but the accusation is made that this particular manager was squandering his possessions. Or as it says in the text, he was wasting his possessions. He's wasting that which the owner owned and and was, was responsible for. And the text implies, regarding this manager, a neglect of duty. There you have it in verse 1, wastefulness. This particular manager was careless. There seems to be at the outset here some kind of misappropriation of funds. This manager, if you will, was irresponsible. In fact, you see that word there, wasting his possessions. Glance your eyes back just one chapter in chapter 15 on the prodigal son in verse 13 where it says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. There it is. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Same word. Whether you use it squandered or wasted, that's what this particular manager did. He was misappropriating that which was entrusted to him. And so the owner in this parable takes action. And this manager is called into an account of his stewardship. Look down at verse 2. It says there, and he called him. And he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. 
In other words, he says to the manager, hand over your books. Surrender your manager. Very clearly in the text, you can no longer be manager. In the words of Donald Trump, you're fired. Maybe I shouldn't have used that. Um, You're fired. I mean, this particular manager was given here a pink slip. And he asked him at that point to turn in the account of your management. In other words, wrap it up. Now, this is a parable, so you got to be careful not to strain the point. He probably should have right there said, you're all done. You've mismanaged it. You're done. Hand me over the keys or whatever he needed to say. In today's realm, if this happened in a business world, believe me, they'd have his box packed that day and he would be ushered out of the office, right? By security. But here in this particular case, he tells him to, to turn it over. But the owner was, maybe in this parable, not doing what's most wise. He probably should have got rid of him that day. But he gave the manager time to think of a plan of action. In fact, the manager knows that he is going to be dismissed. And what he does is he uses the last hours to alter the accounts for his own advantage. I mean, put yourself in this picture, GCV. He's about to lose his job. He's about, in this type of setting, lose his house. It was often two together. He's about to lose his income. He's about, and for sure, has lost his reputation. He has mismanaged, if you will, the stewardship. He is wasteful. He is incompetent. He has squandered the owner's money. Here's the problem. That manager is in deep trouble. He is in a horrible predicament. And so I take you from the plan now to, excuse me, the problem, to secondly, the plan of the manager. You say, well, what does he do? Well, look at the text. The manager, in verse 3, said to himself, what shall I do? He said, he said there, since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig And I am ashamed to beg. He kind of goes into what we call here a soliloquy, if you will. What shall I do? Luke uses that phrase three times. And he basically begins to reason to himself. I'm not strong enough to dig. And I am ashamed to beg. I mean, what you have here is definitely a high-class blue-collar worker. Or, right, or a white-collar worker. He's, he's a proud white-collar worker. He doesn't want to do the menial task. In fact, there's a piece of literature, an extra-biblical literature, that says, thy son, do not live the life of a beggar. It is better to die than to beg. So this manager now is trying to think of this plan. He, it's, it's beneath him, if you will. It's beneath his dignity to dig or to beg. And so he has to do something. And verse 3 goes from, what shall I do, to look at verse 4 now. He said, I have decided what to do. He said, so that when I am removed from my management, people may receive me into their houses. It's almost like he came to the aha moment. He said, suddenly, I've got it. I've got, I know what I'm going to do. I know how to prepare myself when I will be out of a job. It's almost as though he strikes Eureka. Or we say sometimes he has an epiphany at the moment. He needs a future. And the reason he needs a future, look again at verse 4. 
so that when he's removed, that people may receive me into their houses. And so he goes from a state of confusion with his thoughts, and they begin to leap ahead to the debtors that will appear in the next verse. In other words, I will discount their debts, and they will be personally obligated to me. So look at the text in verse 5. So, it says there in the ESV, summoning his master's debtors one by one. Stop there just for a second. One by one, he calls those who owed debts into his office, okay? Or he calls them, and now only two are going to be cited. But I believe the two represent all the others who are called in, okay? He's just going to cite two of what he did. You say, well, what did he do? Well, look at 5b. Look what he did. He said, he said to the first in 5b, how much do you owe my master? And he said in verse 6, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down, and write what? Fifty. I mean, you're reading that, I'm reading that, doesn't, you're not, you can understand, he cut it in half. He owed him, as the text says in verse 6, a hundred measures of oil. A hundred measures of oil, if you begin to calculate it, if you want to know this, was about 875 gallons. So he reduced it, if you will, 50%. He takes it down to 437 gallons, which was a humongous discount. If you just put that kind of in financial economic terms, it was about three years of wages of money. In other words, it was a significant debt that this particular person owned, and he just said, sit down, and he cut it in half. Now, you'll note it says that in verse, in verse uh, where is that, verse 6, where he says to him, take your bill, sit down, what does it say, quickly. In other words, let's get this deal done. Let's get this deal done. You owe my master this. Take your bill, 50%, cut it in half, and we'll call it a day. Sound good? Yeah, sounds good. I mean, it's kind of hush-hush. It's, it's going on quickly, okay? Look at the second illustration, verse 7. He said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. Okay, a hundred measures of wheat would be about a thousand bushels of wheat. They would think that about a hundred acres uh, could produce that. The value there, just so you know, would be equivalent to about eight to ten years of a man's labor. It also was a huge discount. Now you understand in biblical times they didn't do this. In biblical times at when weather came in or when locusts came in, at times they had to do what they had to do within that economy. But to do what this man was doing in this case never happened. And so, beloved, each debtor, here's the plan, is asked to take a bill, write out a new one with a great discount. I mean, this was a scheme, you and I understand, to make the debtors personally indebted to him. The debtors then would never refuse him hospitality after he lost his position, right? Hey, there's that guy. All I know is I owed the master this, and he cut my bill in half. He's beginning to prepare himself, isn't he? 
He's preparing himself when the manager said, make an account, turn your books in, you're done. That when he would be done, he would be welcomed by those who now have suddenly become his friends. I mean, it's twisted for sure. Let me ask you, those of you who own, what if the bank called you and said, hey, you owe 200000 on your note, but we're such a great bank. Just out of, We're just calling you today out of courtesy. Take it down to 100000 And how would you feel? You'd say, man, that's a great bank. They'd have a flood of calls tomorrow, wouldn't they? Because people would want to do their mortgage with them. And so this manager, from the problem to the plan, with his books cooked, if you will, hands them back in order over to the owner. Now, what if you're that owner? And you ask, how did the owner respond? Well, it's there. Look at verse 8. He said, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Upon which Jesus said there, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I take you quickly from the problem of the manager to the plan of the manager to the praise of the owner. I mean, it's kind of shocking to read it, isn't it? I mean, he not only ripped them off, sort of. We'll talk about that in a moment. He changed the books, and when he hands them back over, the master, verse 8, commended this guy. He praised him. Think with me, beloved. This is just shocking. You say, how could he praise him? How could he commend him? Uh, There's a number of views as to why that is. But let me suffice, let me give you just two main views I think will be important. Did Did the manager act honestly or did he act dishonestly? And there's some people who have just a problem with this text. Are you kidding me? Jesus praised this guy? And and then they try to lighten what he did. Maybe he did something to help the owner. And so there's a question, wait a minute, stop. Jesus ethically, this master, and by the way, I don't want to lose you on this. Verse 8, that word for the master commended the dishonest manager. We think it's the owner, but the word for master is curios. It's Lord. And so is it Jesus? I actually think it's the master staying in with the flow of the text. It's the owner. The master commended. How could he do that? And then how does Jesus make that statement that follows? Two views. Number one, view one. The manager acted corruptly. Probably what you were thinking all along. He reduced the amounts owed his master, obviously, that will hurt his master, but it wins him the favor of the debtors for his own future security. Bottom line, he burned them. He burned them. However, the master, view one, praised them simply because he's shrewd. I mean, the thought would be he hands over the books and this master's hands were tied. Oh, yeah, the guy's mischievous. He's dishonest. But hey, what could the master say? But he acted corruptly. View two, the manager acted to his own disadvantage in one sense, but to his advantage in a more long-range sense. And you say, what does that mean? Well, just view two says, 
what, what the manager did is that he cut away excess interest that was owed. He charged them only the amount that was due his master. Therefore, he did not, actly, did not act unjustly towards his master. His master actually praised him because, number one, the, master, the manager won the generosity of the farmers. Hey, everybody's happy here, right? Number two in that second view, he made a smoother job for his successor. He handed over to the master cleared books, if you will, to start fresh. Number three, to the debtors, the manager actually made the master look good, did he not? And so there's that view. And, you know, both have their merits, okay? And there's pages written on these views. But let me just say this to you. It's not the manager's dishonesty that is praised. It is his foresight in preparing himself for his future. That's the point. Okay? I actually think he was dishonest because why would we call him the unjust manager? Why would we call him the unrighteous manager? But here the point is, it's not his dishonesty that is praised. It's his foresight in preparing himself for the future. The master then, verse 8, praises the shrewdness of the manager. The manager knew his job and his reputation were gone because of his action. He needs friends and he wins them to himself. Look what Jesus said in verse 8. It's stunning. Let it sink in. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I mean, how could this be? I mean, Jesus commends this action. He calls them the sons of this world or the sons of this age. You say, who is that? It's unbelievers. You understand that. I don't think that's hard. Unbelievers, they've got strategies, loans, Ponzi schemes, okay? And they're doing everything they can with their buck to profit on it. That's what the world does. That's what the sons of this world do. do. That's what the sons of light do. They take money and they use it to their advantage, if you will. Then it says, look in verse 9, he said they're more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light, what is that? That's the believers. We're called sons of light here. John chapter 12, 36, Ephesians 5, 8. Now listen, beloved, Jesus is not telling us that we should become crooked. No, he states a fact. And here's the fact. That in worldly matters, worldly people are more shrewd and astute than God's children in heavenly matters. That's the point. The children of light, you, me, whom God has redeemed, can forfeit, if you will, eternal blessings through neglect, while the sons of this age or of this world are spending themselves for what is temporal. So I'm asking you, how wise are you in securing your future. That's what I'm asking my own heart. How wise are you? Do you live with an eternal perspective? 
You say, well, what do I do with this text? Well, thanks for asking. Jesus is going to apply it, okay? He's going to apply it. He's going to make his own application. And so I bring you to the final and fourth principle here, the principles of the master, okay? So we go from the problem to the plan to the praise of the owner to the principles of the master. And he provides here the implications for us. And he gives us three principles in preparing for the future and the principles and the implications and the application are for all of you. You might be in junior high. Put this in your heart and mind. You might be in high school. You might be a family. You might be single here. You have a stewardship that's been given. First principle is this, okay? Broad principles. You need to be generous. You need to be generous. And I'm just capturing that. Look at verse 9. It says there, I tell you, Jesus is speaking, make It's unbelievable he said this. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Let me just read it again to you. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. I think we understand the point. The manager in the parable secured a home. He secured friends. He secured hospitality. He did that for those who would receive him for a time. This particular manager, you would agree, made friends for himself. That's what he lived. That's what he did. That's how he conducted business. Now you'll note there, Jesus calls it the means of unrighteous wealth. It's not that money is necessarily wrong, but this term is given at that because often as you deal with the subject of money and possession, injustice is often associated with money because of the pursuit of it. You understand that it belongs to the world. People use money to take advantage of others and they use it to focus on self as the man did back in Luke 12 when he said, I'll build larger barns and I'll make myself, you know, this and I'll do this. And God said to him, you fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. And so here he gives this principle to be generous. Now you say, when though? Look at verse 9. So that when it fails, when your stewardship is over, either when you die or when you run out of your own earthly money, or as it makes itself like wings in Proverbs 23, and money just kind of flies away, or at death, look at the text, that when it fails, verse 9, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. In other words, they're going to greet you in heaven because you assisted them in some manner with your money. You put it to use in God's kingdom, okay? In other words, Jesus is making this principle here. The sons of this age, the sons of this world, do everything they can to secure a temporal future. Should not the sons of light act in such a way to secure an eternal future for others? In other words, God rewards the generous. 
And the running parallels here are incredible. They stand out boldly. He was a manager. And so are you, 1 Corinthians 4, 2. He, the manager, was entrusted with property. And so are you. You're entrusted with the gospel. You're entrusted with finances. He, the manager, made friends with it. So are you with your money, okay? He comes to an end, and so do we come to an end. And then there's opposites in the parable, is there not? He does it for earthly hospitality. We give and are to be generous for a heavenly reward. In other words, listen, beloved, I don't want you to be spiritually bankrupt in heaven. So here's the question. Just my heart to yours from the text. What kind of investments are you making into the kingdom of God? You. I mean, that's the the question. Are you more concerned with physical retirement or your spiritual retirement? So, well, Scott, how do I do that? Practically, what does that mean? Well, listen, you make investments that bring about the salvation of sinners. You use your money to further God's work. That's that principle. Be generous. No wonder he said, I don't know, let the Spirit of God work in your heart. This dude was more shrewd in relation to his own kind, than the sons of light. I mean, the Lord spoke of this, did he not? Do not store up for yourself treasures on where? Earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in what? Heaven. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, you invest, beloved, in gospel proclamation, in kingdom enterprises that spread the gospel to redeem people. And I'll say more about this in a minute, but you can't take it with you, right? There's the first principle as you do inventory in your hearts. Are you generous? Beloved, keep the end in view. That guy was more shrewd for his temporal future than sometimes we are with a heavenly future. You say, well, Scott, pastor, if I had more, I would give more. And I'd probably say, probably not. So why do you say that, Scott? Second principles, be faithful. Look, you tell me. He says in verse 10, does Jesus, one who is faithful in a very little thing, is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little thing is also dishonest in much. Beloved, I say this to you as your shepherd. It's not about how much you have. It's what you do with what you have. Faithful people are faithful people whether they have little or much. And you will give what you have whether it's a little or a lot. And if you aren't giving now, you probably won't give later. 
You say, well, Scott, what's the little and what's the much here in being faithful? Well, the little, at least in the context, is the mammon of unrighteousness. The much is the true riches of spiritual responsibilities in the kingdom to come, okay? You're either generous with what you have or you're not. And if a person, here's the principle of be faithful, if a person can be trusted in handling a small matter, money, okay, then he can also be trusted with a big matter called spiritual responsibilities. That's the point. A person's way of fulfilling a small task is the best proof of his or her fitness to be entrusted with the bigger task. You say, Pastor, what's the point? It's this. If you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, then who will entrust to you the true riches? That's the principle he's making. You, you say, well, Scott, money is not a spiritual issue. And I say to you, oh, yes, it is. Beloved, the way you and I handle our money is often, maybe, in some cases, the most accurate test of your character and your true spirituality. It will show quicker than anything where your heart is. And if God's holding you accountable for your management, and he is, how faithful are you? Okay? Okay, that's the question. So look at verse 12. He said, if you, and I'm just given the words of Christ, have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? What's he saying here? If you have not been faithful in the use of material wealth, which after all is not really yours, it belongs to who? To God. Everything you have, everything that I have, has been given to you as a stewardship from God. And if you've not been faithful in the use of material wealth, which is not yours, but belongs to God, here's the principle, then why would God entrust to you true heavenly riches as your possessions, as your possessions in the kingdom? Okay? In other words, if you're unfaithful in connection of these borrowed goods, how can you expect to receive God's eternal riches? And when he talks about eternal riches, I need to drop this in just for clarity. We're not talking about gain and salvation here, right? The eternal riches, the spiritual riches, are the blessings of future service in the kingdom of God. This is not how one enters, but this is a litmus test of how one will serve in his coming kingdom. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. What I have is mine, and I've earned it. I've worked hard for it. Well, that may be true. You may have worked for it, but it's not yours because God says in Haggai, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. And do you remember what Jesus said back in Matthew 25? You don't have to turn there. The master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will give you what? Over much. I'm going to give you much. It all belongs to him. It's a stewardship entrusted to him. If you are, and I mean this as a gentle shepherd to you, okay? And I I don't have a problem with where we are, but I mean this as a gentle shepherd to you, okay? 
If you're squandering what is his, then he will not entrust to you the riches, the, tr- the true riches in the coming kingdom. You'll lose eternal reward. You say, well, pastor, how can you say that? Because that's what Jesus said. In other words, we're not talking about going to heaven. We're talking about a sphere of stewardship in the kingdom of God. That in some way, in some measure, he's going to take that which was entrusted to you. And if you've been faithful with it, he's going to put you in service in his kingdom. You say, but pastor, heaven's going to be heaven. I know, heaven will be heaven. But listen, there are going to be degrees of service for faithfulness in heaven. And he's saying that to you, he's given you and me a stewardship and you need to be faithful with it, okay? So number one, be generous. Number two, be faithful. And number three, finally, he says you need to be devoted. You know the text. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and what? Money. Who are you devoted to? You can't serve God and money. God is desirous of a single-minded devotion to him. And he does this. Let me, let me make sure I say this. For our joy. He does this for your joy. For your blessing. He's not giving this to punish you. Okay. But definitely your desire in service to God in glory is bound up in the stewardship of what we do with what were entrusted to us. And again, the sons of this age live in such a way to secure their temporal future. What are you doing to secure your eternal future? Now, one of the ways to be devoted to him is to go back to principle one, be generous. Go back to principle two, be faithful to him. The singer, legendary singer, Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. And it's true in this text. And I would just encourage you, make it God. My encouragement to you is be devoted to God and not money. But be assured of this, you cannot do both at the same time. I have no idea. It's not like I'm up here preaching like somebody said, hey, my husband is really all caught. I don't know any of that. But if the shoe fits, wear it. But you can't do both. I think I've told you before about my sons when uh, I was growing up in Chicago, Johnny and Kyle. And we'd, I'd take them to the Bulls game and we'd go into the Bulls game and always out at the front, at least at the end of the years, was that, was that statue. You know, this one of Michael Jordan, you know, where he's... Uh, and, uh, I used, and we used to sit right down on the floor of those Bulls game. I had a friend that had tickets and, you know, watch him drop 30 without barely sweating. And I'd turn to the boys on the way home. God, boys, listen, if you could be Michael Jordan or if you could be a Christian, it's one or the other. If you could have the fame of Jordan or if you're going to be a Christian following the narrow path onto the celestial city, you got to pick one. Kyle, what will it be? And Kyle said to me, can it be both? No, Kyle, it can't, you know. And I just would drive him to that. And here I think Jesus is saying it's got to be one or the other. Listen, let me just encourage you today, okay? We have brought, Paul said to Timothy, nothing into this world so we cannot take anything, what? Out of the world. You're not taking it with you, right? Job said in 121, naked, I have come from my mother's womb and naked I shall, what? Return. You came in with nothing, you leave nothing. 
Remember when Paul told Timothy in 6.8, if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to get rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires and plunge people into ruin and destruction. Remember Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.8, for the love of money is the roots of all kinds of evil It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. It's not money that's wrong. It's the love of money. We understand that. Paul told us, he told those whom he wrote to in 1 Timothy 6.17, as for the rich in this present age, and that's many of us, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Here's what he said. They are to do good. Listen to this. To be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's my prayer. I want us to take up that which is Truly life. You say, do you know how all this works out? No, not really. Not really. But all I know is it's in the word of God. All I know is he's saying use your money so that when you enter into the gates of heaven, you've used your resources in such a way that people will be there to welcome you. That's all it means. I had a young it's probably not such a young man walk up to me. You have no idea what things go to, but a guy walked up to me in Louisville and he introduced himself. I said, oh, sure, I remember you. His name was Don Jones. He's probably about 25 or 27. And uh, we talked a little bit. I pastored the church that his family was at with me in Chicago. And he's, I don't know, he's probably 25, 27, 30, somewhere in there. And right before we just talked a little bit, he says, hey, And I'm not telling you this to pat myself on the back. He said, Scott, I just want you to know, he's, you know, he's an old, he's a young man now. He said, but when I was about seven or eight, I was sitting in the balcony listening to you preach week after week after week. And he said, I heard you preach and I knew in my heart that I was fake. I knew in my heart that I wasn't a Christian. And I knew in my heart that even though you were dealing the truth out, he would have been like up in the balcony. He said, I knew I wasn't a Christian. He said, but I want you to know that 15 years later or so, he said that word got a hold of my heart and it redeemed me. Amazing. Now I'm telling you, I had no idea what was going on in that young boy's heart at seven years of age, but it came to reap a harvest. And I say that to encourage you. You have no idea what resources you give away to God's work that multiply the investment that when you get to heaven, there will be people there who receive you because you've made an investment into them. I don't know how that works with our team going to Albania, but I know those junior high boys who are sitting on the front row when I was there in February who Corey told me they're on the front row every single time the church is open because they got saved at last year's summer camp. Now, I don't know how that works because some of you sent our team to Albania and our our own students went. All I know is there's going to be people in heaven, Joey and Igle and a host of others that I can't remember. But 
They kept asking me, do you know Natalie Jackson? Yeah, I know her. You're Binger and Bomber's dad. I am, you know. Do you know Bo Jackson? And I, I do know Bo. All I know is those kids are redeemed, and when you get to heaven, there's going to be an army there of people. Listen, I just I want to plead with you, not because I'm upset with you, not because I, I think we don't have resources. I want you to have the joy of making a stewardship in something that's not temporal, but something that will last forever. Amen? I mean, you look at what Jesus did. He left everything in glory to come down for us and to give himself. And as we come to Christ, it ought to be our joy to return everything back to him and to be owned by him. You say, practically, Scott, well, where do you start? I don't know. I mean, I I had a few more notes, but we'll just let that go. Maybe that's another time. Maybe I'll get that out in four years. I don't know. Listen, we don't want to be neglectful to share these things with you because we love you. And I want you to have the joy of being welcomed into heaven because there's people there that we've made an investment in. Now, you say, Pastor, is God sovereign? Of course he is. He is sovereign. (laughs) Is is he going to accomplish his work his way? Yeah. But he's going to use you in the process. I don't understand how all that works. I don't understand the money that people can give to things to see people converted. But you ought to make an investment into those things. It ought to be on our heart for the Spanish church and down the road because we've got people who are in our midst that desperately need the gospel. Amen?